the Theravada teachings primarily revolve around these four basic tenets. Because we're so steeped in Theravada, the Buddha basically taught these over and over and over again in order to remind people continually um, the importance of waking up. Um, but I have to say, in the subsequent schools of Buddhism that rose up, you know, the, and you all know, the Theravada is this extensive material, extensive teachings. So some of this was distilled down into something called the Four Reflections. So even though in our tradition we don't actually say the Four Reflections because our, our, you know, our whole way of being with the Dharma is all about all of this, as you'll see. In other traditions like Tibetan Buddhism, they basically have just distilled them down into this very short one sentence. They, they got the Theravada down in four one sentences, if you can believe it. But I find that for us, the four reflections that turn the mind toward awakening are a beautiful shorthand even for us because the knowledge is so intimate for Theravada. So I thought I would talk about them um, in this wonderful shorthand so that you can all take the shorthand with you. The whole idea of the four reflections is to answer the following question. How can we truly awaken when we're already in the waking state? Which basically is the whole teaching of the Buddha, right? In a nutshell. How to really wake up while we're already awake. And what could really remind us in any moment that maybe we're not so awake as we think we are. Maybe we're actually more asleep than we think we are. There's this tradition of the four reflections that really saves us from this continual gripping draw of mindlessness and automaticity in the mind. And I know you all know mindlessness and automaticity in the mind very intimately. So that's the beauty of the four reflections. Since mindlessness and automaticity is sort of, you know, our default in the mind, at any moment you have an invitation to wake up. It's just recognizing what you're not realizing in that moment that you can wake up into. Here's the first of the four reflections. And I know many of you have heard me say this before when I've spoken here at Sangha. The first four reflection is about the preciousness of human life. This human life that you, each one of you, has been born into, this precious human body that every single one of you is born into. The Buddha taught over and over again how difficult it is to be born in a human body. And just to prove it, I'm actually going to read you a little bedtime story from the Opama Samyutta. And this is a little parable or a simile called the fingernail. At Savati, the Blessed One took up a little bit of soil in his fingernail and addressed the bhikkhus, the bhikkhus are the sangha, the, the monks, addressed the bhikkhus thus. 
Because what do you think? Which is more? The little bit of soil I have taken up in my fingernail or the great earth? Venerable sir, the great earth is more, said the bhikkhus. The little bit of soil the blessed one has taken up in his fingernail is trifling compared to the great earth. It is not calculable, does not compare, does not even amount to a fraction. So too, bhikkhus, those beings who are reborn among human beings are few, but those beings are more numerous who are reborn elsewhere than among human beings. Therefore, bhikkhus, you should train yourselves thus. We will dwell gently. Thus should you train yourselves. I mean, this is just one of the small passages where the Buddha, and some of these passages, which I didn't want to um, overwhelm you with, but literally, it's an entire page of the countless, and I do mean countless world systems, the countless Buddha verses, the countless expansive lives, the countless realms you could possibly be born in, the countless forms in which you could be born, and you could even be born in formless realms. It goes on and on and on ad infinitum. And it always ends up with, and guess what? It is so difficult to be born in a human body. Why? What is so great about being born in a human body? I'm throwing this out now to all of you. What is so great about being born in a human body? Yes. We have the we have we have a greater possibility because of, because of the I, I think sometimes it's just because of the the, the realm that we're in and the dukkha that, that we that we live in and just how it's much easier to reach apparently for the realization of enlightenment in this realm than mm -hmm. in other realms um, and. I guess I guess some of the ones with like the David they said like it's much harder there. And it's much it might be a more pleasant realm. And maybe because it's more pleasant even, it becomes even harder. So uh, that's the, that apparently that's the great gift. Mm -hmm. um, oh, you know, by the way, you don't have to be in the David realm mm -hmm. to have pleasant make it even harder to wake up. Uh -huh. We will talk about that. <laughs> but you're right. Anybody else? Any other thoughts about what's so great about being in a human body? Yeah. Well, clearly, to have a mind that allows one to think, to use words, to talk, to write, to walk on two legs, you know, to hug, to have social, all kinds of social attitudes, yes. rituals, etc. Et yes. My cat often wraps herself around me in the morning when the alarm is going to go off. And she usually talks me into not getting off and I don't want to get up and say, good morning, everyone. That sounds like a cat. I often notice, I often think about that. You know, yeah. That's her way of, one of the ways it's communicated. It's somewhat close, and yet, you know, can also be our downfalls as well in terms of waking up our thoughts, our feelings, you know, all, all of these things. Sometimes they turn on us and they make it difficult for us to remember, oh, this is a moment where we can wake up. 
But actually, I think that what's so beautiful and so precious about this human life is we are so creative. Our intelligence is so creative that I could just throw a question out like that. And the two answers that I would get are this beautiful polarity, this sort of bringing together of opposites. And for us as humans, that is totally precious. We have the capacity to run the range of experience. And within that experience, the Buddha taught that any experience in your precious human life is a moment for waking up. One of the things that we have, especially here in the West, is luxury, right? We have time, we have opportunity. Many of us, even though we may not be very wealthy, we still live a standard which allows us to practice. That's a very incredible gift when you have the gift of the wealth and the time to remember to wake up, to do practice. On the other hand, I have to say, maybe some of you have experienced this. I know I've experienced it in my life. When things turn for the difficult, often those are the times in my life when I need practice most. And then I really remember, ah, even when it's hard to practice, my life isn't going so well, I don't have time, I, I don't, whatever you think you don't have to practice, just that thought, I don't have time, I don't have money, I, whatever you think you don't have, you have a mind. You have a mind that can be turned in a split second just by remembering, oh, I'm suffering. This is hard. And the mind can be turned toward one of two directions. It can be turned toward insight. What's really going on here? What is this suffering right now? Or it can be turned to compassion and loving kindness. How can I care for myself in this suffering? which might actually open me to a point where I can generate insight about what's truly occurring here. Yeah? So even the difficult moments are moments for us to actually gain confidence in our practice. Sometimes for practitioners, we have periods in our lives where practice is really hard. I'm sure many of you can relate to this. For whatever reason, your practice has suddenly gotten difficult. And for many people, including myself, that can be an invitation for self-doubt. Doubt about my own ability to practice, doubt about the teachings themselves, doubt about the practices themselves, all kinds of doubt. <coughs> and sometimes if I'm having the thought, oh, I'm not a great practitioner, I'll never be a great practitioner. Or if I'm having the thought, this is too hard, I'm just not cut out for this. I remember my precious human birth. I remember that I may not know whether or not I'll get another chance at this. Whether anybody believes in rebirth, reincarnation, I, you could believe, you could not believe, but whatever, 
even if you only believe this is your only chance at it, what better thing to do than to practice? Because time is limited and we don't know. The other thing about recognizing that you are a precious human being and that your human birth is precious is it tends to cut through self-loathing. All those negative feelings people have about themselves. If you truly sit in the reality of the preciousness of your human birth, rather than generating some kind of narcissistic feeling of, oh wow, I'm like this great human being. No, no, no. It can actually generate metta. And the Buddha said it best. He said, having traversed all quarters with the mind, one finds none anywhere dearer than oneself. Likewise, each person holds himself most dear. Hence, one who loves himself should not harm others. So recognizing your precious human birth cultivates this loving kindness toward yourself. Oh, I really am, I really am precious. This is precious. And it can lead you into that beautiful doorway of the Bodhisattva, which as we all know, the Buddha spent countless lifetimes as a Bodhisattva before he had that final life where he met that particular teacher when he saw that he had attained enlightenment and said, I want that and I'm sick of being a bodhisattva and I'm ready to go for that. And sure enough, his next lifetime, he was reborn as Siddhartha. So basically, we all have this same capacity to have this kind of confidence. And the last thing I would say about precious human birth Sometimes practitioners have a lot of doubt about their practice, their meditation practice, and not just the value of it, but even the doing of it. You know, you find yourself, what, what am I doing? What is this meditation? And I think that the knowledge, the knowing, this deep knowing that you have a purpose here, which is to wake up, can give you a sort of bottom line confidence in doing your practice. And a confidence in, well, you know, if this practice isn't working for me, maybe it's time for me to go on retreat. Maybe it's time for me to go really dive in. Maybe it's time for me to honor this idea of waking up in such a serious way. And we, I don't, probably some of the people aren't here tonight because they're actually on retreat with Philip at Spirit Rock right now. So this is a reason to be serious about your practice, to gain confidence in your daily practice, confidence in coming to Sangha, and being here with everyone. So precious human birth. And as I go through each one of these, I'm going to read you the one-liner that the Tibetans have come up with so that you can hear how totally uh, succinct and beautiful they managed to do this. So it's, the precious freedoms and riches are rare and easily lost. The precious freedoms and riches are rare and easily lost. So, such a beautiful reminder. Okay, number two. 
Well, number two as Theravadins is the thing we all know quite well, which is the contemplation of impermanence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, I'll bet you, if we all left this room and we went down into town, right, and we walked around the streets and we asked people, so, are you aware that everything changes? My guess is they would all say what? Yeah, right? So, you know, it's not so special being a Buddhist, right? <laughs> I mean, pretty much anybody down there on the streets of San Rafael could basically say, yeah, everything changes. So it's not that we have this, this idea that everything changes. That's not the point. The point is, can you actually live the wisdom of everything changes? And that's a whole other ball of wax, really living the wisdom of Everything is in continual change. Nothing lasts. There is no continuance. All things arise and pass away continually. And what we have is we have tools to be able to perceive this directly. Our meditation practice is the best tool to gain the capacity to, in any moment, let your awareness be open and experience the rise and fall of all internal and external phenomena. And it's that direct experience of it that turns the mind to the Dharma itself. Because, frankly, when you really experience it, it's kind of overwhelming. What was it? It, it, it's, it passes me nauseated. Nauseated. Anybody else had a visceral reaction when you've actually you've had it too? What's, what's your reaction? Well, the same. same thing. No. Nausea. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty it's, precious and it's pretty tragic. It's precious and it's tragic. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Nausea. Such a powerful body reaction, isn't it, to being faced with the reality of what actually is. You know, we got all these people out there going, be in the now, you know, be present. It all sounds very cushy, doesn't it? I don't think so. If you really are awake for how all of this is constituted and falls apart moment to moment, I think it's pretty frightening, actually. And you know, the, the great thing about the Buddhists, but a lot of the Pali texts, a lot of it is the Vinaya, you know, what you do, what you don't do, but the whole rest of it is what was distilled down into the Abhidharma, which is, here's how phenomena is constructed, and here's how phenomena falls away, and here's 
where it comes from initially, and here's what it falls away into. And are you willing to actually have the direct experience of all things constructing themselves and falling apart continually, moment to moment? Can you actually be in that? So this is a great gift for us you know, as, as Buddhists. We have a terrific opportunity here to be able to wake up and see things as they actually are. You know, the Buddha actually said that even more powerful than many moments of loving kindness is one moment of deeply seeing the impermanent nature of phenomena. More opening than many, many moments of loving kindness, which the Buddha has said over and over again in the text, is a practice that can lead to enlightenment as much as anything else. One moment of deeply seeing the impermanent nature of phenomena. So if we could really see that everything arises out of conditions and causes, and I truly mean everything arises out of conditions and causes, internal conditions, how you happen to be feeling when you wake up in the morning, how you change in your feeling space as you go through your day, who shows up, what shows up, what gets done, what doesn't get done, what's easy, what's hard. I mean, if you think about it, the, often there have been times in my life when I have contemplated all the things that had to happen in order for me to have met a particular person on a, a, for the first time on a, on a given moment. All the things that I had to have done that didn't go wrong so I could end up there, all the things, all the choices they had to make that they could have not made in order. I mean, when you really contemplate it, it's magical. It's absolutely amazing that anything occurs, that we want to have occur, because frankly, <laughs> the, all the things that would have to happen. So impermanence, if we can recognize that anything can happen at any time, I mean literally anything can happen at any time, our minds might just be able to relax into the continual flow of our experience. Imagine that. And I know that there's a lot of stuff going on these days, you know, the secret and this and that, that, that kind of pulls off of this in a way. But if you realize that at any moment, anything can happen, and I do mean anything. I don't mean any great things can happen. I don't mean it's all positive. I mean anything can happen at any moment. What would there be to resist? What would you fight? Think about it. Even the worst thing that could possibly happen, if you truly were open to the possibility that the worst thing in the world could possibly happen to you, right? You wouldn't be fighting. You'd be like, okay, the worst thing in the world happened to me. This actually happened to me. I got hit by a car walking across the street in Tokyo. Then when I moved to Tokyo, I was told the worst thing that could ever happen to you is have something happen so that an ambulance would have to come and get you because 
The guys that are on the ambulances are not trained paramedics. They're just drivers. So the worst thing that could happen to you is, you know, you could be incapacitated and somebody could come pick you up with no paramedic training. And sure enough, that's what happened to me. <laughs> and there was at some point in the experience where I realized, wow, I don't have to worry about the worst thing ever happening to me anymore living in Japan because it happened. What more? What, what could possibly happen now? That could be worse than this, now that the worst thing has happened. And amazingly, when my mind realized in that moment, it realized the ambulance is coming. These people that have no training are going to move you and your hips completely fractured. You can't move. This is going to happen. And my whole body just went limp in the road. I swear to God, my body just went limp and I just went, okay, there's nothing I can do. Anything can happen at any moment. How flexible, how supple, how open, how receptive can you be to what is going to arise? Knowing that in that suppleness is resilience, and in resilience is wisdom. And in wisdom is the capacity to be awake enough and spacious enough in the next moment to be able to meet the worst thing that ever happened to you in a way where later on you're going to look back and you're going to say, yeah, that was the right thing to do. That was the right thing to do. So impermanence. There's a, a quote in the Vajima Nikaya that I really think the Buddha got this one. Just write down in this quote, and I looked through. I looked through so many of the texts to find the perfect quote on impermanence. Impermanent are compounded things, prone to rise and fall. Having risen, they are destroyed. Their passing truest bliss. Could you read the last? I, I will. I read the whole thing. Impermanent are compounded things. What this means is. All phenomena that arises has interdependent relationship with all of the things that are arising in that particular moment, which means they're not arising in and of themselves separately, so they're compounded. Okay? So, impermanent are compounded things. That means that whatever is arising in any given moment is sure to fall away because it's impermanent, right? I mean, it may not fall away immediately, but it's sure to fall away at some point. Prone to rise and fall. That's the nature of phenomena. It rises, it falls away. It arises, it falls away. Having risen, they are destroyed. Having risen, they are destroyed? Well, once it's arisen, how could it arise again in, that, in the same way? It can't, right? Because all the causes and conditions would have to be exactly that thing for that thing to arise exactly that way in that moment. So as soon as it's arisen, it's destroyed. I love this, it's so great. They're passing truest bliss. Once something is arisen, if you're able to receive it, rest in the knowledge that it's already arisen. So you don't have to do anything about it. Seriously, it's already arisen. So you rest in the experience of what arises, and what's there at that point is bliss. <coughs> the bliss of receptivity. 
the bliss of openness and the bliss that I think precedes that experience of spaciousness which leads to wisdom, which leads to the ability to have the capacity, because we're human beings, to make a choice. Now how do I really want to be with this? Now that I've now that it's arisen, now that I've embraced its arising, okay. What do I want to do now? How do I want to be with this? So if we pay attention in any moment, and I truly mean any moment, to the obvious, and I mean the obvious, the mundane, the obvious, you know, none of this is esoteric. The most obvious things, if you just pay attention, you would see that everything is passing and new occurrences arise in every moment. And you should take heart in this, okay, because nothing is permanent. Therefore, when your mind tells you that this particular terrible moment, this particular horrible feeling, this thing that is just so bad is never going to go away, well, that is just some silly play of your mind, and that is not the way it is. It will. It will be destroyed upon arising, and there is the opportunity for bliss in that destruction. And just remember that most of the time we don't experience impermanence directly like this because we're lost in the experience itself. So, this is the key to waking up. When you find you're lost, revel. As I said in the practice this evening, rejoice in the fact that you're found. Don't dwell on being lost. You're not lost any longer. Don't, oh, I'm such a terrible meditator. Oh, I'm such a horrible Buddhist. No, no, no. No. Oh, I'm awake. I'm not lost anymore. Great. Stay awake. Seriously, stay awake. Just stay in that wakefulness as long as you can. And when it's lost, know that all things are impermanent, including wakefulness until you're a Buddha. And Lord only knows how long it's going to take any of us to be a Buddha. <laughs> so rejoice. Stay awake in the impermanence, and when it falls away, when you get lost again, recognize that loss is another occurrence, and loss too will come to an end, and you'll wake up, and you rejoice again. Oh, I'm awake. And you can do this numerous, short times, many times, numerous times a day, short times, many times. Just keep waking up. There's a beautiful quote by Ajahn Chah, which I wanted to read. One day, some people came to the master, Ajahn Chah, and asked, how can you be so happy in a world of such impermanence, where you cannot protect your loved ones from harm, illness, and death? Great question, huh? So the master held up a glass and said, you know, someone gave me this glass, and I really like this glass. It holds my water admirably, and it glistens in the sunlight. One day the wind may blow it off the shelf, or my elbow may mock, knock it from the table. I know this glass is already broken, so I enjoy it incredibly. So when you have your, you're having your perfect moment, <laughs> you're absolutely like, this is my peak experience moment. Just know that moment's already broken. It was always broken. <laughs> it was meant to be broken. 
by virtue of the fact that it's existent phenomena, it's already broken. So broken feels good when it's the perfect moment, right? When it's your peak experience moment. Broken doesn't feel so good when it's a really difficult moment. They're the same. There's no difference. By virtue of the fact that it's impermanent, that peak amazing moment of your life and that worst moment of your life are equal. They're just phenomena. And that's the wisdom of impermanence. Don't cling. That's it. Don't cling. And then, of course, how can we not mention what one of my favorite teachers, Joseph Goldstein, talks about um, when he teaches on these four remembrances. And he talks about, when he talks about impermanence, he always says, what is the end of birth? He asks this question. Okay, so I'll ask the question. What is the end of birth? Death. That's right. That's true. So, you know, often what we do is we see death as something that happens to everybody else. We don't actually recognize that we are going to die. So the Buddha spent a lot of time entreating us to reflect upon death every day to recognize the impermanence of this precious human life and how beautiful because it ties together these first two of the remembrances. So now I will speak this great way that the Tibetans have managed to distill this second reflection. The world and beings are impermanent. Soon I too will die. I mean, that about says it all. The world and beings are impermanent. Soon I too will die. So this cuts through the idea that anything is permanent, and it also is the reminder. Ah, it's not just everybody else that dies. Soon I too will die. And the soon, there's something about that soon, you know? It's not known how soon soon is, but soon could be sooner than you think. Because, as I started to say earlier, anything can happen in any moment, including the end of your precious human life. So let's go back to the first one. That means you should be practicing and remembering what's truly important about this precious human life. Okay, so that's one and two. Number three. Karma. That is number three. Karma. That ball of wax. Dharma teachers hate teaching about karma, I think. They don't teach about it a lot. At least I haven't seen a lot of Dharma teachers really grapple with karma. Because it's just so ungrappable a ball, really. <laughs> okay. Karma. You know. All of our actions have consequences and results. That's basically karma. All of your actions have consequences and results. Doesn't seem so difficult, does it? But now, let's do what we did with impermanence. What small human mind could possibly contemplate, could possibly hold, could possibly realize the, the enormous complexity of any small thing you do. Since everything is interdependent, everything arises and passes away 
simultaneously, how can we actually ever know? It's just too big to wrap your mind around, really. What is right action? And the totality of what is right action. So thankfully, we have the Eightfold Noble Path, which is a guide for us to be able to work the territory of karma, which seems so enormous. You know, it's like people really get freaked out and hung up on, well, if I do this thing, then it will lead to this thing, and that could just kill off everything. And I, it's, 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 too, it's too big for us. Therefore, we have to come up with another way to come at karma, I think. And I actually do this a lot in the therapy room with my patients. Because, of course, I don't talk about karma very much. <laughs> well, unless, of course, I'm working with a Buddhist. And then we talk about karma. But there's, there's another way, I think, to really embrace the whole ball of wax, which is karma, which is motivation. Really, the thing that most determines the result of any action you might choose is the motivation behind it. So think about something mundane that you did today. Some action you took that you did today. And just see if you can remember, oh, what was my motivation for that? Okay? Just think of something. The most mundane you can think you can think of, like even brushing your teeth. You know, what is the motivation for brushing my teeth in the morning? And now ask yourself, what is the nature of that motivation for me? Was my motivation pure? Was my motivation selfish? Was my motivation for others? Was my motivation that it was just something I had to get done? So I just needed to just contemplate the nature of the motivation of this one mundane thing that you remember. Okay, now what I want you to do is think back over the last month. Think of something really important, some very important action that you took. And ask yourself, what was the motivation? behind this very important thing that I did. And if it's been long enough, now contemplate what has occurred from this action. And ask yourself, did my motivation determine the result of this action? How many of you got a yes? How many of yeah? Good. How many of you thought about this big important thing and recognized that you weren't quite sure what the motivation was behind that doing that big important thing? Now just think about it for a moment. How much of the time are you acting without really connecting to the motivation behind what you're doing? To me, it appears as though if you were willing to be more aware of motivation, 
for what you do, what you want, how you comport yourself in your life. It's possible, it's possible that you might have an easier time of parsing out the karma. I'm not sure about this, but then I started again looking in the text because I thought, oh, this is such a brilliant idea. Maybe I should see whether or not the Buddha actually can back this up. And sure enough, here's a quote. Everything rests upon the tip of motivation. From the Buddha. Yes? Um, I'm an exactly. I'm, I actually feel that they're interchangeable with a slight difference. Because motivation for me is something generally people connect with at the beginning of thinking about doing something. Oh, you know, what am I why am I motivated to start running? Intention is the thing that keeps you running every day. Oh, this is good for me. Oh yeah, I, I intend to keep up my running because my body feels better or you know whatever it is. So m intention is something you can carry through with a very strong connected feeling into your action. Yeah, And then all your actions can line up around intention. And as Philip says, I know, I think we've both heard Philip say this, intention is the thing that can ground you into non-clinging to a particular outcome. Because if you're really holding your intention through an entire process, through an entire act, or even through a series of acts, there could be a whole lot of outcomes that could meet that intention. And not one specific one that you might have a lot of suffering over if it doesn't show up in that particular way. So what do you think about that? Yeah. Okay. Yes. 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 So, in this sense, art making for you, the motivation behind art making is to live. Because I'm hearing you say that, that you see making art as a way for you to be alive, to feel alive, to re-engage with life, yeah? So the motivation for using art in that way is because it's a tool for you to be alive, yeah? Yeah, Okay. 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 Well, I'm sure we can all agree that generally people have lots of different motivations for doing things, and they can live side by side. Yeah. So maybe this is two different motivations 
that you'll have to weigh which one am I going to put more energy into, which one feels better. And the intention may still be to carry through the motivation of staying alive, period. Yeah? So that you keep trying. Oh, I'll try this. Oh, I'll try that. Yeah? That's a beautiful example of motivation. And it's also a beautiful example of karma because you are reaping very beautiful karma by connecting into the desire to be alive because it's a precious human birth. And your desire to be alive means that you're willing to stay here and wake up. Of course, it's difficult for so many people and yet how beautiful it is that you can have the motivation to remain in this precious human life so that you can wake up. And I, I just, you know, I bow to you for this. And to Philip as well. Oh, and of course, to the person whose life you remember. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. That was beautiful. So, the Dalai Lama says the true value of an action is not measured by its success or failure, but by the motivation behind it. So karma, our karma is not about whether we succeed or fail. It's about what, how pure is our motivation? Why are we doing anything? Why are we putting any effort forward? And to what end? I think it's important to remember that we live in a culture that's obsessed with success. It's obsessed with hanging self-worth on success, right? And because of this, we forget that it's not possible to control all the forces that come together to create the causes and conditions to manifest any particular outcome of success. That's why motivation is so important, because often the things we're motivated to do take more than one try. We fail a lot, but failure, if the motivation is really precious to you, if you're really committed, you know, you fail, and you fail, and you fail, until the causes and conditions come together where you finally succeed. So if you look at it that way, your self-worth is not tied into it at all. Essentially, you're grounded in your motivation and your intention for who you want to be, how you want to show up in the world, and essentially what you want to manifest here. And I think that these things are very Buddhist. They're extremely Buddhist. I just, I, I wanted to say that really it's not necessary to consider past lives. Okay? Because in one day, you have a lot of lives in one day. <laughs> How many lives do you live in your own mind in one day, right? So, so I think that if, if you're somebody for whom, you know, you're, I don't know if there's past lives or, no, I can't even think about that, or, no, I'm totally, I think this is only one life, you can still experience the whole 
realm of karma just in one lifetime with all the lives that you live in any given day. You think of it as momentary rebirths in different states of mind and different experiences. And that's fine. You can practice that way. Actually, the Buddha once remarked that only a Buddha mind can fully grasp the fullness and complexity of karmic law, the way it unfolds, not only within one lifetime, but over countless lives. So that's a way for us to sort of recognize that even if we tried. And actually, uh, this is a quote uh, from Ajahn Buddhadasa. And he defines Buddhism as a religious system which is concerned only with this life. And while not denying the existence of an afterlife in heaven or hell, Basically, Ajahn Buddhadasa places them outside the focus of the religion, which I think is pretty interesting. And for those of you who don't know, Ajahn Buddhadasa is one of the most revered Thai teachers that have ever lived. So, take that for what it's worth. And then one last quote on karma from Jack Kornfield. He says, Understanding the law of karma is known as the light of the world, because through this understanding we can take responsibility for our destinies and be more truly guided to greater fulfillment in our lives. So shall I speak the one sentence (laughs) for the third reflection? Oh. The results of my good and bad deeds I will reap without fail. The results of my good and bad deeds I will reap without fail. That's telling it like it is. Okay, and last, but definitely not least, the defects of samsara. Wow. So samsara is a Sanskrit word that means perpetual journeying or continuous flow. Perpetual journeying or continuous flow. I think one is like the reframing of the other one, actually. Perpetual journeying just sounds like hell, doesn't it? It's just... But continuous flow, doesn't that just sound so much better? But yeah, I continuously flowed from one life to the next. Instead of, I perpetually journeyed because I just couldn't wake up. I just couldn't get in line, so I kept journeying. No, no, I continuously flowed from life to life. (laughs) And samsara, of course, does refer to the endless wandering through cycles of existence. So here's a quote from the Buddha. The Buddha said, Because this samsara is without discoverable beginning. This samsara is without discoverable beginning. He's telling the monks, don't even try to try to think about how all this started. It's just too difficult for your little small mind. So don't even go there. He says, just take my word for it. This samsara is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. For such a long time you have experienced suffering, anguish, and disaster, and swelled the cemetery. I'm telling you, the Buddha really, he just just told it like it was. 
So impermanent are formations, bhikkhus. So impermanent are formations, bhikkhus. All phenomena. So unstable. So unreliable. It is enough to experience revulsion towards all formations. Enough to become dispassionate towards them. Enough to be liberated from them. Quite a powerful quote, don't you think? So actually what the Buddha here is, he's actually showing three pathways. Three pathways, these are all included in the Theravada teachings, these three pathways. This pathway of revulsion, I'm sure you've all heard about the meditations that some people take on, you know, the meditating on the body itself, all the parts, all the bile, all the, you know, just all the disgustingness of, of this thing in order to break, to create a revulsion toward the idea that somehow this is all so fabulous and we should just want it so much. So that, that's one pathway to take. Then there's the pathway of dispassion. Well, you know, now that I'm really paying attention to impermanence and I can see the phenomena arises and falling, and I'm actually beginning to see the impermanence of all of this, maybe it's not so solid after all, and maybe actually I don't have to grab at it, want it, make it be there for me all the time, so much. Maybe I can just take a step back here, you know? Have a little space between me and it dispassion. And then the last one, enough to be liberated from them. Well, liberation can happen in a lot of different ways. And liberation actually can even happen upon arising of the phenomena. If you're able to recognize the nature of phenomena as it's arising, well, it just, you know, it doesn't even catch you. You see it as it is. It arises and it's destroyed right in front of you. And what's destroyed is not the phenomena itself at that point, It's the whole project of clinging to the phenomena as anything other than empty of any inherent existence. And then it just dissolves. It's just another phenomena. It's not you. It's not about you. It's just phenomena. And of course, you all know that this can go all the way to anatta, not self. Even the self itself is the same. It's just a phenomena that arises with all other causes and conditions, with all other phenomena. It's just as empty. It's just as open. It's just as spacious. It's just as non-solid as anything else. And it arises and passes away moment to moment. So revulsion is a methodology that can be used to cultivate non-attachment. Seeing things as they truly are is a method for cultivating insight into the true nature of phenomena as impermanent, unsatisfactory, and empty of inherent self-existence. You can choose. That's the great thing about the Buddhist path. Whatever works for you is what works. Just remember that what can be so real in one moment can also be completely transparent. Oh, all that drama, all that stuff I conjured up, oh my gosh, you know, in the next moment it can be like, what, what was I thinking? What was I doing? This is, and bam, there it is, transparent. It wasn't anything at all. 
So the whole project of suffering really dissolves into the bliss of awareness itself. And the defects of samsara, the true defect of samsara, is that it clouds, it obscures your capacity to recognize that this awakened bliss of awareness is your experience all the time, every moment. It's always there. It's never not there. It's always there. All you have to do is recognize phenomena as it is. Bam. Just that knowing. Bliss. Right there. Ah, Freedom, liberation, and the whole project of clinging. You may cling in the next moment again. Believe me. That's the mind. But that's okay. It's another moment for you to, again, recognize what's here. Short times, many times. So... When we recognize this, what we're able to do is to gain confidence in our own capacity to be with our experience, no matter what's arising. So shall I give you the last, for, the fourth reflection, the last one? Here we go. Since there is no contentment at all to be found in samsara, I must practice the perfect dharma just as it is taught. Since there is no contentment at all to be found in samsara, I must practice the perfect dharma just as it is taught. So from the Vatupana Sutta, I'll just finish here. The practitioner requires perfect confidence in the dharma thus. The Dharma is well proclaimed by the Buddha, visible here and now, immediately effective, inviting inspection, onward leading, to be experienced for the wise by themselves. And because this is true, this is the reason to remember the four reflections. So I'll just repeat them all, one by one. The precious freedoms and riches are rare and easily lost. The world and beings are impermanent. Soon I too will die. The results of my good and bad deeds I will reap without fail. Since there is no contentment at all in samsara, I must practice the perfect dharma just as it is taught.